Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming. Uh, this is the first of four uh, annual, uh, part of the annual lecture series of TSU. Uh, this year, the theme of our lecture series is the scalar politics of transport. Uh, being an election year, we thought it would be a good opportunity to speak about some of the key issues that might be involved in, in policymaking and governance. Um, this week, we have convened uh, two speakers and uh, a chair who will be speaking to us about the EU sustainable urban mobility plans um, and having a discussion about uh, whose politics they are, but I'll let the, the speakers do that. If I might briefly introduce everybody, um, our chair today, Dr. Astrid Gunnerman, is a senior lecturer in transport policy at the Institute for Transport Studies in Leeds. Um, before joining ITS, she was um, part of the German Aerospace Centre. Her main research interests are in environmental and sustainability assessment of transport and transport appraisal, and she's currently working on the, trans uh, on the Challenge Project, uh, which is working with EU cities to develop uh, tools to better manage their sustainable urban mobility plans. Our first speaker today will be uh, Mr Mark Major. He's the team leader for sustainable urban mobility at uh, DG Move uh, in the European Commission, and he's been a permanent official there since 1999. Uh, before that, he was a senior transport planner for the city of Nottingham, and his work in transport at the Commission has included policy development for passengers and freight, uh, working as part of the international climate negotiations, and the transport programme and project management. Um, our second speaker today uh, will be Anne Shaw. She's the head of transportation services at Birmingham City Council, and she has responsibility for dealing with the development of Birmingham's sustainable urban mobility plan. She's also coordinating on High Speed 2, um, improving walking and cycling as key modes of travel in the city and uh, working with supporting the new emergent governance frameworks and financial arrangements within Greater Birmingham and Solihull um, in relation to transport. So I'd just like to thank our speakers uh, before they have <laughs> got involved in today um, and pass over to Mark. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I'm going to try and take 30 minutes um, to speak to you a little bit about um, the EU's policy and activities on urban mobility, what we do and why, um, specifically what's happened with the sustainable urban mobility plannings, which we've done a lot in Brussels to promote, um, and some comments on national policy frameworks for urban mobility. So um, this talk is, of course, based... We're talking about urban mobility. Um, I'm uh, the team leader for sustainable urban mobility in the Commission, um, but of course, as you just heard, in some of my other jobs in Brussels, I've been working on other aspects of transport in the EU system and in the UN system. So that's given me a little bit of a background on the decision-making. Um, I should say it's a real pleasure to be back in Oxford 25 years after I was here, uh, living here. had a very happy four years in Oxford. Um, and nice to see a number of friends and colleagues, and former colleagues here as well. So that's, uh, that's great. Um, the only other thing I should say before we really get started is, of course... Um, I'm, a me I'm a, an official of the European Commission, um, and I'm going to tell you a lot about the European Commission's policies and activities, but of course the reflections on how this is working, um, and what I think is good, and what is not so good, of course they're my personal opinions, not formal positions of the, the Commission. So, EU action on urban mobility. If we think about the challenges of urban mobility, all of you are familiar with these topics um, and these problems. Um, what is difficult in my job is to not understand these problems or even to understand what the solutions might be. I think for some of these things we could quite quickly come to a conclusion what the solutions could be. 
The difficult thing in my job is working out how can Brussels help with solving these problems. Okay, so this is the difficult thing, is what could be Brussels' contribution? Um, I've put in bold two topics, because, um, you know, you think of transport and urban transport as a local topic, um, which should be down to locally democratically elected mayors to, to, to act on. Um, and congestion is something where you could say, well, a local mayor has all the powers at his or her disposal to manage congestion, whether this is road space, public transport prioritisation, parking policy, etc. Um, so this is something which could be very heavily left at the local level. Um, you could say the same thing about air quality and greenhouse gas emissions, but actually air quality and greenhouse gas emissions are two topics which are very clearly regulated at the EU level. And actually, um, 27 of the 28 EU member states can't comply with European air quality law, largely because of problems with vehicle emissions in urban areas. So immediately you see that actually you think of urban transport as being a local matter, which should be in the hands of local mayors, but actually EU law, which applies to the national governments, um, is being infringed by problems with air quality at the local level. So air quality and problems with compliance with the EU directives is actually a major driver for action on air quality in cities. So immediately with this topic, you see that actually it's not a simple thing of just urban transport being for the local level and for mayors. Actually, there is a national and EU dimension very clearly. Um, The mechanisms where the national obligations, um, the directives, apply to national governments and how these are passed down to the cities or the local level varies a lot between the member states. And if 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 a member state doesn't comply with the air quality law... 27 currently don't comply, the Commission takes the member state to court, not the city. So London's problem, London won't be taken to court by the Commission for the non-compliance. It will be the UK. And now those mechanisms um, vary a lot. Greenhouse gas emissions is another topic where there's binding EU law. So each member state has a legal obligation to reduce their emissions in a certain way. But unlike the air quality, um, we're currently on track with the greenhouse gas emissions. So at the moment, we're not having to go follow up with the member states and say, OK, you're not complying. Um, but you could maybe imagine a future scenario as we go to 30 or 40% um, reductions. If you have law on that, you could see a time in the future where the Commission may actually be starting to take infringement actions or following up with the Member States on infringements on greenhouse gas emissions. So that gives you a start, a little bit of a flavour. So as I said, the problem is, who should do what on urban mobility? And you can think about all the different levels. Um, I'm going to try and talk a little bit today about the European Union, the national and the local level. But it is also interesting to think about the UN level um, and, of course, the citizens' level, which is often a little bit neglected. And in our work in preparing the 2013 Urban Mobility package um, in Brussels, we did a Eurobarometer survey specifically to understand citizens' attitudes. This was a representative survey of citizens in all the 28 member states. And one of the questions that we ask is, in your opinion, who should be mainly responsible for reducing traffic in cities? And I thought the responses were actually quite interesting, um, because although a majority clearly say this is city authorities, a significant number of people, more than a quarter, said this was for national governments, um, regional Um, and a third saying citizens themselves. Um, I didn't do a detailed analysis of this, but it seemed to be um, the extent to which people thought it was a national government responsibility um, was inversely proportionate to the size of the country. So you see in in the smallest member states, a high proportion of people said actually this should be for um, the national government to solve. But in the bigger member states like Germany and Italy, this went down to quite a low level. Although the UK seemed to be an outlier as being a big member state, 
Um, but with a lot of people, more than a third of people saying actually it's for the national government to solve this. So I thought this was quite an interesting, um, interesting information. Okay, the first thing I want to talk about briefly, um, to understand this presentation you need to know a little bit of how the EU functions. Many of you are living, working or studying here in the EU, so I'm sure you're intimately familiar with how Brussels works. <laughs> but in case you're not, I'll remind you, is that the EU has policy um, which it implements in two ways. So this is either through the famous binding EU legislation, so laws that are agreed in Brussels, which are then applied in each member state, um, like the famous directives, um, or through funding programmes. And many of you I know have benefited from different research funding programmes. Many of you work in places that have had infrastructure funding. So we have funding to um, also support projects um, and investments um, in, to support our policy. So those are the two classic tools of the EU. But I've put a third one on, which I also think is very important, is that the Commission has this policy um, platform, is that we're able to say in our white paper that we should be phasing out the use of conventionally fuelled cars in cities. That's one of the things that we've said quite recently. Um, now, OK, that's not a law. Um, we're not funding any projects yet in phasing out cars in cities, but actually it creates a debate. And I'm sure people in the room here would think, well, I agree with that, or that's not very realistic, or that's not the right objective, but it creates a debate. And I think this third topic, this third role of the Commission, um, is quite important and is, under negle is neglected. In the UK, there's a big discussion at the moment about immigrant workers claiming benefits, um, and you hear a lot about this in the British press. Um, you could go and look at the Commission's views on this and see what the Commission is saying about this to get a different perspective than what you're fed on um, from the, the British government or the British press. And so the Commission, in this case... Um, has said that we don't see any evidence that there's, uh, you know, there's immigrants in the UK um, abusing the benefit system, and the Commission has invited the British government, I think, ten times to provide the Commission with data to support this argument, um, still without response. So again, you immediately get a different reflection on this topic by looking to see what the Br Brussels has to say. So I think this sort of policy debate and analysis from an independent civil service is useful. The next thing you need to know is that the European Commission, the organisation I work for, which you can see is the permanent executive of the EU, proposes legislation. So we would take an analysis of a problem, we would do the necessary studies and background work to propose a law um, to the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union. And of course it's the directly members of the European Parliament that are directly elected, and the ministers, so in the, count, in the case of transport, it would be the, the, the 28 transport ministers, they have to decide. So the Commission proposes and the Council and the Parliament decide. And the Council and Parliament have to agree on the same text, which is very often a modified version of the text that is put on the table by the Commission. Now, what is unique about the EU is that, of course, that the decisions in the Parliament and the Council, particularly the Council, are taken by a qualified majority. So you don't need to have everyone agreeing like we often do in the UN system, only when everyone agrees, can, can you move forward. In the EU, we have this ability to move forward um, and, and agree on laws by a qualified majority. So this means that, you know, six, ten member states could vote against a proposed law, but it could still be agreed under a qualified majority, and the law would still apply in that country, even if they voted against. And this is one of the things that makes the EU um, completely different to other international organisations. So for, in the Council, we need... Um, the rules have just changed, actually, and um, we now need 55% of members of the council, um, um, which comprise about 65% of the population. Now, there's other institutions in Brussels, 
um, a number of other institutions, and one of them is the Committee of Regions. And the idea of the Committee of Regions is to kind of give a local or regional perspective on the work of the Commission and the work of the European Union. But what is really important to understand is that the Committee of the Regions' role in the decision-making process is purely consultative. So in the case of Birmingham, that we're going to hear about later on, um, the leader of Birmingham City Council, Albert Bohr, is an um, important politician, leader of a big city. Um, he's a very active member of the Committee of Regions. Um, he's very interested in sumps. Um, he's done a lot of work to promote sumps in Brussels. He's the rapporteur on the Commission's urban mobility package. But in reality... Um, the Committee of the Regions don't have any formal say in this process. You know, Brussels is about power and influence and money, and these bodies which are purely consultative, you know, people want to get things done and get things agreed. And so um, that's something you also need to know. So there is a representation of city and regional interests, but they don't have any formal role in the decision-making process. So what I want to say now is that um, clearly what actually gets agreed is a result of a number of things. Um, clearly there's the sort of the political and economic climate, I've called it in general. So the recent economic crisis, I think it has a big influence on how the Commission is, pro- is thinking about new legislation and the political, thing, the political situation in Europe. Um, you know, although nothing has changed in the legal treaties um, in the last months, I mean, there's a very different atmosphere in Brussels now with the new Commission um, wanting to actually look, cut back on some of the laws, take things that we've put on the table, take it back um, off the table. Um, um, you know, the economic crisis, I think, affects things a lot. We had, at the end of last year, a new air quality package. On economic grounds, um, you could easily dramatically lower the standards required on, um, or improve the standards on air quality um, with significant benefits in terms of health. Um, but the time is not right politically to propose even tougher targets on air quality. So, of course, there's the legal basis, there's the things, the powers, the areas that the EU are allowed to work on. Um, But I want you to think about particularly the decision in the council, which is where the national transport ministers sit around to agree on things or not. And I want to make it clear that I think that they're defending national governmental interests. So they're really thinking about national government interests. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean it's the right answer or the best answer, but they're defending their national government interests. And I think a good example of this is is tax. So tax is one of the things that in the European Union would require unanimity to agree on. So we have put huge effort in Brussels into into having a single market. We have product standards. We have common definitions for products so that goods can flow freely throughout the EU. Um, if, you, if you can put goods on the market in one member state, you're allowed to sell them in all the other member states to create a single market. But we all know that actually the tax rates on products are very different in different member states. And so, you know, the, the French buy their cigarettes in Spain, the Belgians buy their fuel in Luxembourg because of the tax rates. Um, um, you think of the recent problems with corporate tax evasion. You know, um, the president of the Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, said this was basically comes about because companies were in, in taking rational decisions about moving and basing themselves in countries with, with the lowest corporate tax rates. So you have something which I think the member states, so you could easily see the advantages of having some kind of minimum tax rates or harmonised tax rates, um, but they would never get agreed in Brussels. So there's no harmonised taxes in, in the EU. The EU's been quite strong on tackling um, greenhouse gas emissions or action on climate. 
Um, you could imagine having a carbon tax on fuels. This would be a measure which would quite easily provide a, an economic incentive to use lower carbon fuels. But we don't have a carbon tax because I think this would be, um, it would never be agreed because this would require unanimity. And the member states understand that if one of the definitions of a member state about their sovereignty is this tax-raising power. And if you were to give up this element of sovereignty, then the game's over. Um, I think... I think it's just a good example of how the member states, how the transport ministers are actually developing their national interest rather than trying to think of necessarily coming up with the best answer or, or the right answer. And in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, the additional point I wanted to make is that we have a mechanism now in the EU to manage um, the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we have the emissions trading system, which is, um, has some merits um, imposed to a carbon tax. But I think the real reason that we have the emissions trading system is because that was proposed under the environmental article on the treaty and can be agreed by a qualified majority. So what we got is something that could be agreed, um, not necessarily an alternative solution, which might have been better, which was not really properly discussed because it wasn't proposed because it would have required unanimity, which would have never been. So I think that's um, a good example of how... Uh... <laughs> so... I try to think a little bit about why or how national governmental interests um, differ also from urban interests. I think um, national civil servants very rarely have a local background. Um, so the people that are coming to meetings, uh, you don't normally have a progression in the career from working a local authority or a city authority to then move to the national government. That's not like an obvious pathway. So I think there's just a genuine lack of understanding of urban issues. Um, or expertise um, in national governments. Um, also the case in Brussels, there isn't any tradition really. I worked for a city before I moved to Brussels, but that's very, very rare. Most of the people in the Commission um, work for a national government or maybe worked in law or in economics and academia. Um, I think national governments are very, very reluctant to actually agree things on urban areas because, of course, if you say to urban areas, you have to do an urban mobility plan, the next thing you know, they're going to say is, well, actually, we need some more staff, we need some resources for that, and we'll be looking for some budgetary demands in response. So I think another reason why member states maybe don't um, uh, give more... Um, explicit instructions to cities is because of the fear of budgetary demands. I mean, there's natural political tensions between cities and, 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 and national governments. Often, mayors of big cities are of the opposite political party to a national government. That happens quite a lot. And even, as in the case of London at the moment, um, where you have the mayor of London and the, the government and the prime minister from the same political party, there are still very clear political tensions and difference and competition between these two people. So there's natural political... Um, I also see a tremendous bias in discussions about urban issues towards big cities, capital cities. I think this is because civil servants are living in capital cities, where actually the vast majority of EU citizens live in small or medium-sized cities. We only have very few really big cities in the EU, um, so there's this bias there. But I think um, it really comes down to this question of power and control. In the same way that member states don't want to give Brussels more power, um, on tax or in other areas, because this is a loss of their sovereignty. Um, I think the same thing occurs the other way. So if they were to give more powers um, to cities, they would feel that they were somehow losing um, power and influence. Um, so again, um, not um, always the best solution. I think one good example of this was the EU Covenant of Mayors. So this was a voluntary initiative created in 2009, where cities could voluntarily sign up to some cl climate commitments. 
So it wasn't a legal framework, it was purely voluntary, but a mayor could go online and say, we're going to make a 30 or 40 percent And what we saw, um, I said, the EU paid for the you know, a small office in Brussels and paid for the website. 3,000 mayors from cities all over the world signed up voluntarily to often much more ambitious climate reduction commitments. You know, they had to make a, you know, a formal statement, they had to take it through their political process, um, and there's people checking this and following up on it. So you can clearly see that at that time when we were struggling on the international level to try and get commitments, um, to, that mayors were actually far in advance, and there's a tremendous energy and desire from the local level to actually do more and go further than national governments were prepared to go. Um, and it gives you some idea of the potential. I just did this um, quick calculation. Um, population is one of the thresholds that needs to be passed um, to get something agreed in Brussels. And I calculated that the three biggest EU cities, just Paris, London and Madrid, have about 18 million um, uh, res- citizens, inhabitants, um, which is actually about the same as the nine smallest EU member states. So a third of the EU member states. So in Brussels, we take tremendous care of like what's Malta's position, what is Slovenia going to say, you know, is Luxembourg with us? But, you know, they are really small if you think about um, the size of some of our cities. But we never, you know, we never discuss with Paris or London or Madrid. Um, and I think this is a real a weakness. Um, if you just... Um, uh, one of my colleagues, former colleagues here, Peter Viz is here. You know, every day in Brussels, we're sitting down. He's had hundreds of meetings with the 28 member states. Every day in Brussels, we sit down with the 28 member states in the Commission to try and negotiate. I bet no one has ever sat down with the 28 biggest cities. You know, this is, you, know you could get 100 mayors in a room and have quite an interesting discussion. This will never happen. But yeah, I mean, we get a letter from Slovakia and we're like, oh, what's Slovakia saying? Um, and I just think it's... Um, an interesting um, reaction. So one of the things I want to say at the end of this section of my speech is to say that I think we really have an urban blind spot in the European Union. Um, 72% of the population lives in urban areas in the EU. 85% of the GDP is generated in urban areas. We're talking a lot about jobs and competitiveness and growth. And I think there's really a, a lack of understanding of urban issues in the EU system. And as I said, zero formal role in the EU decision making process. Okay, um, I want to just, at the end of this, is to say um, uh, about a very interesting book by the American academic Benjamin Barber, If Mayors Rule the World. Um, He makes the case that nation-states, by definition, are about sovereignty and independence, um, but cities are about cooperation and interdependence. Um, He says that the 19th century was about empires, the 20th century was about nation-states, and the 21st century is going to be about cities. He goes into quite a lot of detail about all the challenges that are faced, um, and he thinks cities will save the world, and he has the ambition to create a global parliament of mayors which will be purely voluntary. There's a lot of things in his book that I don't agree with, um, and I particularly don't see how this um, situation with a voluntary cooperation could really be um, effective. Um, I wanted to highlight this text to you. Hopefully you're all intimately familiar with this text, It's um, a text which says we commit to promoting an integrated approach to planning and building sustainable cities, um, to the support for efficient multimodal transport systems, public public mass transportation, clean fuels and vehicles, even a commitment to mixed-use planning and of encouraging non-microse mobility, including by promoting pedestrian and cycling infrastructures. Did anyone know what the text is? A lot of good things in there, a lot of things that we would all agree with. Um, That is actually 
the outcome of the Rio plus 20 um, negotiations in 2012. I represented the EU in this discussion. Um, and actually, compared to how hard it is to get agreement on text in Brussels, when you will spend hours and hours answering over a word, this language was relatively quickly agreed. Um, you know, even some of the, the Middle Eastern states had some problem with the language. But 192 governments signed this document. So basically, every country in the world signed up to this statement on the need for the promoting pedestrian and cycling infrastructures. Why was that so easy? Because, of course, there's no one following up. There's no obligation that comes with it. Um, nothing will happen with this. You know, you agree to a word in a text in Brussels, and that's agreed. Then you're held to it. The Commission will follow up on it. If you don't follow up, you know, there'll be an infringement process. You'll be taken to court and possibly fined. So I don't see how a voluntary process that Mr. Barber talks about could be very realistic. Okay, the next section of my talk is on the sustainable mobility plans. I don't want to go into any detail about um, the, the plans themselves. That's going to follow, I think, in the presentation from Birmingham. How did this develop? So back um, 10 years ago, um, DG Environment had a working group on sustainable urban transport plans, as they called it at the time, and this fed in to the strategy on the urban environment by DG Environment. <clears throat> um, the working group had made a number of recommendations about making sustainable urban transport plans mandatory, um, but this was not taken forward. I think that was a reflection of the personalities and the politics of the time. But very importantly at that time, quite a lot of projects started to be done on sustainable urban mobility plans. So many people around Europe started working on different aspects of the plans. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, they were a feature of the DG Moves um, Action Plan on Urban Mobility in 2009, where we took some commitments as the DG Move to do some more work on. Um, but again, these were purely statements by the Commission um, and relatively low-level documents. Um, but what really changed was in our 2011 um, Transport White Paper, when urban issues, and particularly suburban urban mobility plans, took a step change in their importance. And this led to our communication of 2013 that I'll explain a little bit more. So over the years, um, you're used to the, Euro the development of European transport policy. Um, and as it's evolved, it's paid more attention to different things. But what is really interesting about the 2011 Transport White Paper is it had two very specifically urban goals. So there's 10 specific goals in our, our White Paper which has a 10-year horizon from 2011. And two of those goals, the first two actually, are very specifically urban. So the Commission said that we should be looking to phase out the use of conventionally fueled cars in cities by 2050, half the use by 2030, and move towards zero-emission city logistics and major urban centres by 2030. So specific targets for urban mobility. And this was really a step change in Brussels on being serious about urban mobility. And again, why is this? And this is because... You can't achieve many of the things we're trying to achieve on energy policy, on air quality, or on climate policy without more action on urban mobility. And this is reflected... Um, so despite the restrictions of subsidiarity, which say that the European Union should only act um, where, uh, where action at the local, national, or regional level can't, can't deliver, you see that the EU is getting more involved in open urban issues. So... Over the years, we've developed this sustainable urban um, mobility plan process. Um, it's not about the plan itself. It's not about the document. It's about this local, open, con consultative, broad, continual and consensual process um, for, for developing an urban mobility plan. Um, um, there's lots of resources available on this. 
But what has been important, remember I said about the EU having this funding that's available to implement our policies, and this has been very important. So in the 10 years since we started thinking about urban, urban transport plans as, as they were in 2004, there's been many, many teams of researchers and organisations working on this topic developing different schemes for order, or, um, auditing urban mobility plans, training materials for urban mobility plans, best practice projects on urban mobility plans. And this is really important because as the thinking in Brussels has matured, you know, that can't happen in isolation. You need knowledge, understanding, experience, analysis, evaluation to move forward. So all of these projects have contributed over the years um, to the 2013 urban mobility package where the Commission... Um, included a specific annex on an outline of what is a sustainable urban mobility plan. So from 2004, when we just had a working group of experts, we now have a commission document which has an annex um, recommending. And I think this is really important because, of course, it's not mandatory. It's a commission document. It's not a law. We haven't proposed a law on sustainable urban mobility planning, but it means that you know if Birmingham doesn't include in its plan a whole number of things that the Commission has listed important, someone is going to ask them, well, actually, why have you not done, why have you not taken care of business, you know, transport for the elderly, or why have you not included urban logistics? Because these are things that the Commission is saying should be within the scope. So it's not mandatory, um, it's not detailed, but it gives um, um, an important sign of what needs to be included. <clears throat> okay. Um, the Commission said in the urban mobility package that we would set up a platform on sustainable urban mobility plans. Um, this has been done and um, will continue and upgrade the support for the development of implementation of sustainable urban plans in our financial instruments. And you will see that we have the new financial period now, the European Structural Investment Funds. A lot more attention is being paid to this um, by national governments in what they're, they're setting. Um, so these two things have happened. And what we've done also in the package, we've invited the member states to assess their current urban mobility and develop an approach that ensures coordinated action at the national, region, local level and review the tools that they put at the disposal. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So online, we have an urban mobility portal, a portal which is a single entry point for a whole range um, of information. So instead of you having to find out about those 17 projects that I showed on that slide, this has now been integrated and made available in a single portal. So you can know there and get um, access to the outline that we produced, detailed guidance, documents in various languages, best practices, um, certification methodologies, training material, um, etc., etc. So all that is a resource available online for free. Um, that's what it looks like, um, and that will continue to grow over the years. So again, um, making it easier, making the tools available. Um, I wanted to give um, a little bit um, um, of thought on <clears throat> the example of France. So France has had a mandatory approach to sustainable mobility plans for 30 years now. Um, so they, they went down the route of having a law which required the biggest urban areas um, to have an urban mobility plan. Um, 60 were done on a voluntary basis, but actually, importantly, what the, the law created was actually a whole community and knowledge and expertise on urban mobility planning. And actually, a lot more cities in France have done urban mobility plans on a voluntary basis than the 60 that are required to do it on a mandatory basis. Some French experts will now tell you that actually the law could actually be taken away. The ball is rolling. This is now well established. You know, France has a national research institute which supports cities to help them do uh, their urban mobility plans. Does experts have a little bit of an overview? So they've got a, a compilation of all the plans um, and how to do them. So they've taken a one particular approach. So one of the things they thought about 
in Brussels, um, one of the options we announced says, well, should, should we consider making sustainable urban mobility plans mandatory? Is that something we should do? Um, so if you come to us and say, you know, we, you want to use European money to fund major investments um, in transport, maybe we'd say, well, actually, we want to see that this broad bridge or this train is actually part of a, a more mature um, project for the urban area. Um, so that, that was one of the things we looked at. I mean, there's a whole number of problems with that. Um, in particular, you know, who would have the role of judging whether a plan um, was appropriate? Think of all the complexity of local situations, local geography, um, context, um, legal framework. I mean, who would have that role? Um, and we really quickly came to the conclusion that this would really risk becoming a rather paper exercise. It's not about the plan itself that's really important. As I said, it's about this process, this ongoing um, continual process to improve and have a, a long-term local consensus about the direction of your urban mobility plan. Um, and of course, cities already have a number of obligations under national law to have certain documents, um, so those risks will become just an additional requirement um, and overlap. But importantly, um, there was a clear thinking that um, if we want to make this mandatory, we have to get the member states to agree to make it mandatory. So we could propose that they should be mandatory, but as I said, we need the Parliament and the member states to agree. We might well have been able to get the Parliament to agree with us, but very little chance that the member states would have given the Commission an extra tool not to give them their money back. Because, of course, the member states see it as their money, which they're getting back to use on their projects. And anything which gives the, the Commission more power, more control over how that's used is not what the member states want at the moment. So um, we didn't go down that route. It was excluded quite quickly, but had to be included in our analysis. So coming to the end of this um, section of my presentation, I think the EU's work on, on SUMPs is actually a very good example of this soft influence of the Commission. So it's not a law on urban mobility planning, but all this work to have a, recommend, have a, have a, have a framework um, to have projects have developed this, uh, this, um, this expertise at adds value. It's a good example of how we're not saying this city should work on air quality, you should work on road safety, you should work on climate. We're not telling cities what objectives they should have. Of course, that's for the local democratic processes. But it recommendations about the process that needs to, to be gone through to achieve it. Um, I think the approach we've developed, because of the richness of the different member states, is the approach is flexible. We've built a clear European consensus on sustainable urban mobility planning now. There's no one who's, you know, there's not like a divided, different views. There's, there's a large consensus in the expert community, and we've provided all these support tools. And actually, what you see is that in many member states, um, um, the leading cities that for some reason maybe because they had a particular problem or had particularly charismatic leadership have done a lot on have a mature urban mobility they're actually influencing national policy on urban mobility um, so you know some member states are actually going to some of the good cities and saying actually can you help us develop our national policy so I think this is a good example of how this third area of EU uh, soft influence the last thing I want to talk about is um, national policy frameworks. So we are inviting the member states in our, in, our, in our policy to make sure they have the right conditions for local action. Um, as I said, we've asked member states to assess the current performance of urban mobility and develop an approach that ensures coordinated action at the national, regional and local level. Um, if each city decides on their own data formats for information 
or rules for trucks to enter their city. If this is done on a city level, I mean, clearly your vision of having exchange of information or being able to buy a truck which lets you go to Manchester, Birmingham and London um, is suboptimal. And we're inviting member states to review all the tools available to them. Um, now, of course, this is a voluntary approach. We can't make the member states assess their national framework. We can't make them provide tools, but we're trying to encourage them to do this. This is a little bit the, this is the diagram we use in the Sustainable Mobility Package to reinforce the message that cities are primarily responsible for taking action on urban mobility. It's a local responsibility. However, we clearly see that cities alone can't do it. And this idea of subsidiarity means that Brussels doesn't do anything, the national government doesn't do anything, and we leave cities alone really doesn't work. Cities need a supporting framework at the national and the EU level um, to deliver. And we're saying clearly that we'll do what we can in Brussels, where we see a real EU added value, to have best practice programme and to support um, projects into assessment of these plans. We will do that. Um, but they, clearly we need member states to provide the right national framework. And what we see is some member states have some elements of a, of a supportive framework for action on urban mobility. Some have absolutely nothing. And I would say personally that no member states has a really comprehensive and full, and full national framework. So you see, um, for example, um, I wanted to list here to give you some ex examples of what I'm talking about. You know, what could a national framework contain? I mean, of course, you can have requirements or obligations. You know, cities must do this. Um, you could have that. Um, you might need to give cities the powers to do certain things. Um, almost no city... Um, has the power to do revenue raising. So the cities that have done um, um, congestion charging um, have had to have a special rule to allow them to do that. In the Swedish case, the money that is being raised by Stockholm and Gothenburg is actually national revenue, which is gifted back to the city by the national government. You know, so you need the powers to do the things you want. In Germany, we see thousands of low emission zones um, in, in German cities. Why is that? Is it because they've chosen that as the best route to go down for their circumstances? No, it's because it's one of the few things they can actually have the powers to do in Germany. You can't do road user charging in German cities. They don't have the powers to do it. So actually you see that cities need to be given um, the tools. Um, you can have guidelines, training, capacity building, centres of excellence, like I mentioned, CERTO in France. Um, you can have net expertise networks, quality control. You can have a library of documents. You could support in portals and create a national dialogue. You could have a national dialogue in the UK on sustainable urban mobility. So there's a number of things that could be included in the national framework. As I come to the end of my presentation, um, um, I want to tell you about what is a new thing that we're doing in Brussels. So last year we've created a, a member states expert group on urban mobility. So now in Brussels there will be two or three formal meetings a year of national experts on urban mobility. The member states were very nervous about this when we proposed this because they're like, oh, this is Brussels trying to creep in to take more competence. You know, we don't want Brussels telling us how, to, how much cycling we need to have or, or how wide our pavement, pavements need to be. But actually we had um, Mr. Callas, who was the Transport Commissioner at the time, had two um, exchanges with the Member States um, in the Transport Council on this um, to explain them. We wanted to bring the Member States together to have exchange information between themselves and with the, with the Commission on urban mobility. Um, they reluctantly kind of went along with this. Um, we then went for the formal process where each member state nominated their urban mobility expert to represent their country. All this information is transparent and online. We had the first meeting in October last year. <clears throat> 
Um, and actually it went very well, because of course every single person that came to that meeting who was representing their national government had a lot of things that they wanted to ask the other people, they had a lot of things that they wanted to talk about, they had a long list of problems that they wanted Brussels to help them solve, or ask the other member states. So actually by creating this expert group, we've created something um, which I think will really add value. Now as long as the member states... Um, at a more political level don't see this as a, an attempt of us to prepare some legislation on, you know, everyone has to do road charging by the 20th of January next year. As long as they don't get this feeling, I think this will be really a very productive um, and what you clearly saw is that the many member states that have no national framework for road mobility were really, really keen to hear about what other states are doing. And I think this is a, an interesting new development. Um, very early days yet. We need to see how this looks in five years' time. But of course, and this probably should be in red and in bold, this is a voluntary initiative. We can't force the member states to come to this meeting. We can't force them to take part. We need to make sure it's a useful and valuable resource for them to keep it going. Um, Okay, I come to the end of my presentation. Um, So I think the first thing I was trying to say, and hopefully you understood, is that I'm really concerned that in the 21st century the EU has this, this blind spot on, 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 urban, on urban issues. I think um, Mr Barber is right that the 21st century is going to be about urban issues um, and the EU doesn't seem very well equipped. You know, I'm trying to work on these urban topics from using the Brussels tools and it often feels that you've just got the wrong tools for the job. It doesn't really work. Um, and I don't at all want to be negative about the EU, the EU system. For me, it's been a real pleasure to work in the EU Um, It was a unique, bold, courageous and visionary um, initiative um, in the second half of the 20th century to solve problems between member states. I think it's been a very successful thing. I think it's brilliant that we have these formal mechanisms to sit down together and solve problems together um, with a rule of law, with transparency um, um, on all sides. So it, it met its objectives in the last century I just worry about how well it's equipped for the challenges of the 20, the urban challenges of the 21st century. As I said, I think the SUMPs are a good example of how the EU can add value without making a law or spending billions of euros um, can make a difference. Look forward to what Birmingham has to say about this. And I want to say is that, I mean, this idea of subsidiarity where we leave... Oh, well, it's a local issue. Transport is a local issue. We leave this to the mayors. This idea... Um, uh, is for me, it's just um, really simplistic. Even big cities need help. They need the right supporting framework. And it's amazing how often London, um, when Boris first came into power, he closed the Brussels office of uh, London. Um, of course, all the big cities have an office in Brussels. Um, he closed it, but actually it's gradually kind of reopened in effect. Um, and actually there's lots of things that they come and want us to help with. You know, they were very concerned about the cycling fatalities and to solve this, they needed to change to the EU rules on the weights and dimensions of trucks. You know, that's not something he, you know, it was a priority for him on his political platform is to solve the problem with cycling deaths in London. But actually, even Boris, which is probably one of the most powerful um, politicians in Europe, probably one of the most direct votes, um, you know, needs Brussels to help him with this part of the solution. And there's an endless list of other things where they actually come to us and say, well, actually, uh, we need your help on this. You know, if they want to do cross-border enforcement, enforcement of their um, road charging system for all the foreign vehicles that are in, you know, they need to go to the national government to get the cooperation with the other countries to be able to follow up with the French or Belgian drivers that pay their fines. So they can't even do the, the congestion charge without um, Brussels' help. 
And again, I think, um, as I said in the last part of my presentation, I think this new direction where we're going to work with the member states to encourage them to develop the right national frameworks for mobility is a really interesting new development. It's voluntary. Um, is that going to be sufficient for the challenges of energy or climate or air quality in urban areas? I don't know. But I think this is an interesting new development in how Brussels is working on urban mobility. And it's one of the things that I'm most eager to follow in the next years. So that comes to an end of my presentation. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope it was interesting for you. Um, I hope it will stimulate some debate. Um, and I would just like to say that I'd be happy now or, or later to take any questions, either in a plenary or if you're too embarrassed or too scared to speak in public, to take questions privately afterwards. So thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Mark.